No more tripping, praise God. Thank you for bearing with us uh, as the, they were trying to fix that issue. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please get ready to turn to Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and on. In his book, Adopted for Life, Russell Moore writes these words about his experience about the adoption of his two boys, and I quote, The creepiest sound I have ever heard was nothing at all. My wife Maria and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of two trips required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, although we at times stifled the urge to vomit and weep. The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. I stopped and pulled on Maria's elbow. Why is it so quiet? The place is filled with babies. Both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. Here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry, because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they simply stopped crying. The silence continued as we entered the boy's room. Little Sergei, now Timothy, smiled at us, dancing up and down while holding the side of his crib. Little Maxim, now Benjamin, stood straight at attention, regal and czar-like, but neither boys made a sound. We read them books filled with words they couldn't understand about saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the same, but there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time in the same way we had entered, in silence. On the last day of the trip, Maria and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye. As by law, we had to return to the United States and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears. And that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew, maybe for the first time, that he would be heard. On some primal level, he knew he had a father and a mother now. I will never forget how the hairs on my arms stood up as I heard the yell. I was struck, maybe for the first time, by the force of the Abba cry passages in the New Testament, ones I had memorized in vacation Bible school. And I was surprised by how little I had gotten it until now. Little Maxim's scream changed everything. More, I think, than did the judge's verdict and notarized paperwork. It was the moment in his recognizing that he would be heard, that he went from being an orphan to being a son. Close quote. We're continuing our study through Galatians in our series, There is One Gospel. And in our passage this afternoon, Paul presents one of the most prominent teachings of the Bible on the doctrine of adoption. How sinners have been adopted as sons of the Most Holy God, our Heavenly Father, because of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you are here this afternoon and you profess to be a Christian, I wonder if you truly understand what it means that our God is our Father and that we are His children. 
The late theologian J.I. Packer writes, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, is greater. Amen? So, brothers and sisters, what does it mean that God is our Father and that we are His children? From Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through chapter 4, verse 11, I want to share with you five realities of spiritual adoption. Five realities of spiritual adoption to encourage you and build you up and to remind you of God's love for you. Here's the outline so you know where we're headed. Point number one, new family from verses 26 through 27. New identity from verses 28 through 29. New master from chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. New father from verses 4 through 7. And point number five, new principles, chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. New family, new identity, new master, new father, new principles. Amen? Brothers and sisters, I pray this message will remind you anew of the great love that God the Father has for you and me. I pray that you be reminded afresh, no matter what trial or difficulty you are facing today, that your Heavenly Father loves you and cares for you and provides for you all that you need to find comfort and rest and strength and hope in Him. I pray that you would be reminded that no matter what suffering may come your way, that the Spirit of God is with you and for you, and He is interceding for you so that you can cry to Him, Abba. And the Father hears you. And the Father answers you. And the Father helps you. Amen? Guests and visitors, welcome to the Sunday gathering. If you are here today and you do not know yourself to be a believer of Jesus Christ, we especially welcome you. We've been praying for you. We pray for you today that you would come to know this amazing love of our Heavenly Father, who is a father to the fatherless, who is hope to the hopeless. In Christ Jesus, you can be a child of the most holy and gracious God. We pray that you will hear His invitation through Jesus' wonderful good news today. We pray that God would grant you faith in Him today. So let's turn now to our passage found on page 974 in the Blue Bibles around you. And while you turn there, let me give you some context. Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, is writing to uh, the young Gentile non-Jewish churches in the southern region of Galatia. Because Paul had heard word that false brothers, or the Judaizers, had slipped in secretly in order to bring the young Gentile non-Jewish Galatian Christians into submitting to the works of the law, namely to undergo their religious requirement of circumcision and other rituals in order to be a true follower of God, in order to be a true member of the church. Well, we've seen through the previous chapters how Paul lovingly, yet seriously, and even somewhat harshly rebukes the Galatians in order to wake them back up from near apostasy, from nearly abandoning their faith. Paul emphasized that the gospel that the Judaizers were claiming was actually no gospel at all, that to submit again to the works of the law would be as if Christ died for no purpose and in last Sunday's passage, chapters 3, verses 15 through 25, Paul presented to the Galatian Christians the purpose of the law in order that they might understand the relationship between the old covenant of works with the new covenant of grace. Answering the question in chapter 3, verse 19, why then the law? And we learned from last week, last Sunday, that God's covenant is promised or permanent. That God's covenant is progressive. The law had a purpose to point us and lead us to Christ, and that God's covenant is fulfilled in Christ. That's why Paul clarifies in chapter 3, verse 16, 
Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one who is Christ. So brothers and sisters, every promise, every prophecy, every covenant of God climaxes and culminates in Christ. In Christ, the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith, according to chapter 3, verse 14. And to sum it all up, Paul says in verse 24 and 25, So then, the law was our guardian, our disciplinarian, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, which leads us to where we are in our passage today. And I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open and follow along for the entire duration of the message as I preach and read from Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through chapter 4, verse 11, which says this. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by the nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe the days and the months and the seasons and the years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. The first reality of spiritual adoption is, point number one, a new family from verses 26 through 27. As I have said it before, and I will say it again, that the essence of Christianity is that God saves a people for himself, that the church is a people set apart before the foundation of the world. You see, God saves us individually. Every single one of us have been saved individually by God, but God calls us into community. The very nature of a Christian is to belong to a body of believers. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. Christianity has never been about you and God only. This is why a virtual church is an oxymoron, because the very nature of what the church is, a corporate gathered body of the redeemed. So it makes sense, doesn't it, that having learned of God's purpose for His people and how the promise of God would be achieved through Christ in relationship to the law, Paul introduces us to the first spiritual reality, a new family. Look at verse 26 again. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. The first observation we can make is that the word for in verse 26 indicates the ground for verses 23 through 25. 
Believers are no longer under the law, no longer under a pedagogue, no longer under a guardian, a babysitter, or a disciplinarian for the former age of salvation. History is over, and now believers are justified by faith. Believers are now all sons of God. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you realize the tremendous significance of this reality. Previously, the phrase Son of God has only been used to reference the Son of God as the proper title for Jesus the Christ. Jesus, who is uniquely and exclusively the Son of God, equal with the Father from all eternity, unrivaled by any creatures in His essential deity, that Son of God, Son of God. Brothers and sisters, Son of God was the very claim upon which the Pharisees falsely accused Jesus of blasphemy, which eventually led him to a cruel crucifixion on the cross. To claim Jesus as a great rabbi, as a great teacher, as a great prophet of God had no conflict, caused no disturbance whatsoever. But to claim Jesus was the Son of God, that was a grand claim. To his enemies, a preposterous claim, a scandalous claim. In human rationale, an impossible claim. God becoming man cannot even be fathomed by those of other religions. Yet because Christ became the curse for us according to the Scriptures and became our substitute sacrifice in the selfless Son of God, again, we are all sons of God through faith. Amen? Now when Paul says we are sons, it means we have reached maturity. It's equivalent to saying we've reached adulthood and have obtained the promised inheritance. Whereas under the Old Covenant, Israel was God's son, but the law was in force for that period in salvation history and functioned like a babysitter or guardian. That was last week's passage, wasn't it? But now that Christ has come, now that faith has come, babysitting is over. We don't need babysitters anymore, amen? Believers are now sons. Not only sons, but they all belong to His body. We are the people of God. Now that Christ has come, the door of the promise has swung wide open for all of us who trust in Christ. For in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. Paul is pointing out for us a new reality. That because of the Son of God, we have been made sons of God through faith. We have been welcomed into a new family. So interesting, isn't it? And might I say, reassuring as believers with Baptist convictions, the truth of the next verse, verse 27. Take a look there. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Getting excited about this verse, y'all. In a God-inspired letter in which the main argument of the Galatians is clarifying how circumcision in the Old Testament covenant sign is not a requirement for saving faith, here is one single reference to baptism in the entire letter, serving an entirely different purpose than circumcision. Here's what I mean. As we have learned of the progressive nature of the covenants in last week's passage, here's another evidence that the culmination of the covenants fulfilled in Christ progressively revealed God's one redemptive plan for His one people through a plurality of covenants. Unlike those who hold to covenant theology who tend to subsume or flatten the covenants, under the overarching category of the covenant of grace. And the reason why this matters is because those who hold to covenant theology argues that there is a continuity between Israel and the New Testament church, and it affects, at least in two ways, 
uh, which differ with our understanding of what the church is. First, they believe that both communities, Israel and the New Testament church, are comprised of believers and unbelievers, while we don't. We believe that the, church, the New Testament church is composed of regenerate believers. Second, they believe that their respective covenant signs, circumcision and baptism, signify the same spiritual reality, thus their rationale for applying infant baptism in the church. But look how Paul teaches the reality of baptism here in verse 27. Not as a requirement for salvation, for entrance into Christ's church at all, but as a result of salvation already granted by grace, through faith in Christ alone. As theologian Timothy George says, the whole burden of the letter has been to say that salvation is received through faith in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law, including specifically the requirement of circumcision. After all, that Paul had said against Judaizers and their interposition of circumcision as a prerequisite for a right standing with God, did he here set forth his own right of initiation into God's favor? Was he saying to the Galatians, my opponents were wrong in trying to circumcise you? What you really need is to be baptized. The requirement of baptism has replaced that circumcision. Was that what Paul was saying? Not at all. Paul was not saying, if you want to be right with God, you must trust in Christ and be baptized with water. That was not what he was saying at all. That was precisely not what Paul was saying to the Galatians. If Paul believed that baptism merely replaced circumcision, he almost surely would have made such an argument in Galatians, and as such a declaration would have settled the debate completely over circumcision. But instead, in the first verse of chapter 3, when Paul reminded the Galatians of the beginning of their Christian experience, what does he say? Does Paul say, were you baptized? No. He says, did you receive the Spirit? Paul was stating the objective basis of faith is not the ordinance of baptism, but rather that to which baptism bears witness, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, Paul explains that understanding justification by faith to be credited a righteous standing with God in becoming the sons of God in Christ through faith goes hand in hand with belonging to the body of God, the church of God. And baptism is the ordinance which Jesus himself modeled and instituted for the new covenant people in order that a newly believing, redeemed sinners can publicly profess their unity with Christ in the identification with his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism by water immersion with all who believe and profess the same in the church of Christ. You see, circumcision and baptism are both covenant signs, but baptism is the sign of a new and better covenant. Circumcision pointed to the need for a spiritual heart surgery, but baptism pictures the accomplishment of that surgery. Baptism doesn't replace circumcision. Baptism pictures its fulfillment. This is why Paul let us hear and emphasizes for us in these verses that the new covenant is a regenerate community and not a mixed community like Israel composed of believers and unbelievers. That's why Paul communicates baptism is for believers only, for those who have put on Christ in accordance with verses like Romans 6.6, 6, Romans 13.14, Ephesians 4.24, and Colossians 3.10. What Paul meant for Christians to put on Christ in baptism involved a willingness not only to believe in Him, but also to live for Him, also to suffer for Him. 
the truth of what Paul testified of himself and for all who trust in justification through faith alone in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen? That's the first point. Second point and these points are much shorter. Second reality of spiritual adoption point number two. A new identity from verses 28 through 29. If you're offended, even slightly at all, why this passage is only addressing sons and not sons and daughters, these next verses hopefully will encourage you, but also would correct you. Because when these verses calls us sons, it means to elevate us to the status of heirs. Since in that day and culture, heirs were the only sons, were the only heirs who are the recipients of the family's inheritance. So look with me to verse 28 and 29. It says this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In explaining the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone to the Galatians, Paul was not only breaking down the dividing wall of hostility, Christ's finished work in his life, death, and resurrection purchased for all believers between God and man, bridging the gap between the old covenant's righteousness by works of the law versus the new covenant's righteousness by faith. Paul was also addressing the powerful counter-cultural spiritual realities of what it means to be justified by faith in the realms of ethnicity, economy, and sexuality. You see, in the ancient world where one's racial background or social class or one's gender determine the privileges of one's life or one's fate, Paul argues in Christ such boundaries provides no hindrance whatsoever in determining whether one is a recipient of the promise of God as a child of God. Well, friends, over 2,000 years later, much hasn't changed, has it? Ethnicity, economy, and sexuality are at the forefront of this nation's debates, at the forefront of the global debates. When humans lack the truth of God's word, millennia of human intelligence and science did not eradicate racism, has it? Millennia of human conscience cannot determine marriage is for one man and one woman for human flourishing, can it? Millennia of human common sense cannot distinguish God created us male and female for a purpose, does it? This is what it means when Scripture says we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we walk following the course of this world in Ephesians 2.1. This is what it means when Romans 1.18, it says, For the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men by their unrighteousness who suppress the truth of God. And such a verse, like verse 28, can be frequently today be pulled out of context, used to support all sorts of political and ideological agendas in the 21st century, in the year 2023. 2,000 years later, brothers and sisters, Judaizers in all sorts of forms, who aim to add to the gospel, who aim to nullify the gospel, which are actually false gospel, which are not gospels at all. What this verse means is not to blur the lines between ethnicity, economy, and sexuality at all as a means to promote color blindness or to deny or undermine the reality of racism or racial oppression. This verse does not mean to promote communism or socialism or to deny or undermine the painful after effects of the transatlantic slave trade. This verse does not mean to support transgender argument that gender is non-binary. 
That the new covenant nullifies God's original purpose of creation. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. No. Brothers and sisters, the Bible upholds the truth. Men and women are created equal in dignity, value, and worth, yet have different and distinct complementary callings in both marriage and in the church. That is true. That is an unchanging truth. Yet Paul's sweeping declaration of the triad of Christian equality, Jews and Gentiles are one, slaves and free are one, men and women are one, makes Christ's finished work on the cross that much more remarkable and powerful and life-giving because only in Christ God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do in the sending of His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, as it says in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 through 4. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is a reason why our societies are so divided when men and women identify themselves by these very categories of division, isn't it? When anyone identifies themselves first by their ethnicity or economy or sexuality, it will surely divide. That's why as Christians we should never identify ourselves by man-made distinctions. Black Christians, white Christians, Asian Christians, gay Christians, conservative, progressive, moderate Christians, even complementarian Christians, even reformed Christians. We are Christians. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We have Baptist convictions, yes. We have a Reformed heritage, yes, theologically. I am Korean by birth, American by earthly citizenship, yes. But who I am in Christ far more outweighs what I know of myself, how I live in relationship to others, how I love God and love myself and love my neighbors, how I hope and trust not in myself, not in my rights, not in the things of this world, but solely and wholly in Christ alone. Hence we read in verse 29, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The only way we can be legitimately called the offspring of Abraham is if we belong to Christ, union with Christ, being clothed with Christ, and being baptized into Christ. All different ways of portraying the same reality. The heirs of Abraham are those who belong to Christ by faith. Amen? That's point number two. Point number three, a new master. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. Look at those verses. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is an owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. No illustration can perfectly compare to this situation that Paul portrays for us. Because the fact of the matter is, we are not the rightful heirs, deserving of the inheritance of God. A child who is a rightful heir of a wealthy family would receive the inheritance in due time. But the fact of the matter is, we were not the rightful heirs. We were slaves. We had no rights to this particular family inheritance whatsoever. We were barely making it off the scraps. We deserved none of it. But as in the old story, perhaps, that you know of the prince and the pauper, it is as if our wretched fate as the pauper were exchanged with the extravagant life of the prince, our unrighteousness for Christ's righteousness. But the point of these verses is this. 
Before we were sons, we were slaves. It says, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, according to verse 3. Now, elementary principles of the world can mean different things. We can't be sure of the exact meaning. But it can mean a couple of things here. The law, specifically circumcision and the burden of the works of the law that Paul was distinguishing from grace. Uh, some theologians say the elementary principles of the world can refer to the angelic powers or demonic forces that rule unbelievers. Some say it can mean elements that make up the world, earth, air, fire, and water, meaning we were enslaved by the things of the earth, the comforts and the treasures of this earth. In any case, the truth is, the fact of the matter was, when we were children, before we knew Christ, we were enslaved. We were not yet sons. We were not yet heirs. But here's what's certain, that for God's children, whom God had set apart before the foundation of the world, such enslavement had an expiration date. Verse 2 says, until the date set by his father. You see, when faith came, when Christ came, faith came, and he adopted us as his own. We are no longer under the slavery of the mastery of the world. When Christ came, when faith came, we gained a new master. But this good and gracious master is not only uh, this fearful Lord that's up there and high and lofty and mighty. The next point shows us that he is so much more. Point number four, fourth spiritual reality of our new master is that he is also our father. Look at verses four through seven. Verse four through five says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, here in these verses, Paul reminds us of the turning point of history. In these two verses, a concise summary of the most important event in redemption history. One theologian says verses 4 and 5 contain one of the most compressed and highly charged passages in the entire letter because they present the objective basis for the doctrine of justification by faith. The point in which God has planned and purposed and presented from eternity past how his chosen children, you and I, although marred by sin, would be reconciled back to him. It's the point in history that all of the Old Testament promises pointed to. It's the point in history believers of him throughout all the generations still today cling to. You see, in these few words, God's determined plan of intervention and mission unfolds. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. In these few verses, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ, the best news you and I will ever hear, and never will there be any other better news ever to come than this news. But when the fullness of time had come, what we learn from that phrase is that God doesn't make mistakes, brothers and sisters. He knows exactly the time and the season. We learn that His plan was predetermined. It was spoken, it was predicted, it was written, and that time had come. What time? For God to send forth His Son. At that time was the perfect pre-appointed time. It was when God sent His Son, when God Himself, the second person of the Trinity, would take on flesh to dwell among us. That He was born of a woman and born under the law means that although He was truly God, He was truly human. As fully human, Jesus lived under the law, lived under the dominion of the tyranny of sin, 
Yet Jesus proved that he was the exception. He is the true offspring of Abraham, true Israel, true son of God. And as such, he lived in perfect obedience to God's law, whereas all others violated God's will. And as one who lived under the law, as Galatians 3.13 says, it tells us he took the curse of the law on himself in order that he might liberate and set free all those who were enslaved under the power and curse of sin. Jesus Christ on the cross became our substitute sacrifice, satisfying the full wrath of God reserved for sinners once and for all. But Jesus, as you know, did not remain dead. On the third day, Jesus Christ rose again from the grave, conquering sin, Satan, and death forever. And he did this, again, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, that was the purpose of the cross. It would have been enough for God to release us from slavery, to rescue us from our captivity to the law, and so to redeem us from its curse. But what we see in these verses, God did not stop there. Once Christ had gained our freedom, He gathered us up into His family. He went beyond redemption to adoption, turning us from slaves into sons. But not only that, verse 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God has given us His very Spirit into our hearts that we can cry out to God, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. And guess what? He hears us. He answers us. He is with us. J.I. Packer says again, the revelation to the believer that God is his Father is in a sense the climax of the Bible. To those who are Christ's, the Holy God is a loving Father. They belong to His family. They may approach Him without fear and always be sure of His fatherly concern and care. This is the heart of the New Testament message. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you know what it means that because of Christ, God the Heavenly Father is your Father today. That the creator of the universe, the sovereign ruler of the galaxies, the one who holds the world in his hand, is your father, Abba. I love the testimony of our new member and brother, Jarrell, who testifies that even though his experience with his earthly father is less than pleasant, rather hard and difficult, it was through knowing the heavenly father that he came to know what true love is. Isn't that true of so many of us? Although our earthly fathers have failed us, in the Heavenly Father we have an Abba. We have an Abba. We can trust Him. We can rely on Him. We can depend on Him. To know our Heavenly Father is to know the greatest love, unfailing love, unconditional love, eternal love, satisfying love. I remember in the most dire moments of my life when I felt like giving up or giving in when I don't have the strength or the words to say or pray. I can only cry one word. And he draws near. Abba. Father. In Korean, Abaji. And he hears me. He is with me. Amen? What truth to cling to today, brothers and sisters, when sufferings and sorrow come our way. Verse 7 says, You are no longer a slave. These are simple words, but get it through your minds. You are no longer a slave of this world, to the elementary principles of this world, but you are a son. 
And if you are a son, then an heir through God, receive his blessings, embrace his benefits, cling to his promises. That is what this verse is saying. If you are here and you are not a Christian, I wonder if you know this amazing love of God, of our Heavenly Father. There is no better love. There is no other love that even compares. Receive His love today. Call on Him who hears you and answers you right now in this moment. If you would call on His name, the Bible says He will answer you. He will save you. So I encourage you to repent of your sins today. Turn from trusting in the things of this world and trusting in yourself. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, not for somebody else, but for you. And trust Him today with everything. And tomorrow and forevermore. Amen? Fifth and finally, new principles. Verses 8 through 11. Just look at verse 8 for now. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Paul is giving us a reality check, isn't he? Whatever you are clinging to that is not God the Father, they are not gods. They are not reliable. They are not strong enough. They will fail you and disappoint you. That is clear. But look at verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world whose slaves you want to be once more? Dear brothers and sisters, don't you forget that God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten you. Paul clarifies that when you come to know God, it's actually that you are known by God. You don't know God. He knows you. And that's the truth. What does that mean? He knows your struggles. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your doubts. He knows your sufferings and sorrows. But the truth of the matter is, knowing all of that, He loves you. He cares for you. He's got you. He has a purpose for your life. Do you believe that? Do you trust in that? In the midst of hardship? In the midst of pressures and temptations of this life? Don't turn back to the weak and worthless elementary frail principles of this world and become enslaved by them again. Don't do that. Guard and ground yourself by God's new principles, by God's truths, by biblical doctrines, by Baptist convictions and distinctives. Cling to God's promises. And as verse 10 says, while you do them, don't just go through the motions. You observe days and months and seasons and years and all this religious stuff. Don't just go through the motions. I'm afraid you might, I have labored over you in vain. Do it with your heart. Do them as a son. Do them as a child, an heir of the family of God. In Christ, you have been adopted into a new family. You have a new identity. You have a new master. You have a new, good and gracious, merciful father. And you have new principles. That's who we are. We are sons of the most holy God by the Son of God who loved and died for you and me. Let's pray. Father, these are simple words and simple truths that the Son of God gave himself up so that we might live as sons and no longer slaves. Father, so many of us in this room are living in lies and deceit that you don't love us, that you are far away. Father, help us to not to be enslaved by the elementary principles of this world. Help us to truly know what it means that you are our Father 
and that we are your sons. Father, help us to cling to the promises that you show us through our passage today and help us to be encouraged and refreshed. Help us to hope in you, in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.